History, lecture number 79, by Weiss. Uh, today is the First Crusade. The, uh, <coughs> we, I mean, we really finished yet last time. We said, hey, there's last time afterwards, we'll talk about Rashi. Uh, we finished last time, this is, this is um, springing from the discussion on anti-Semitism, which was more of a, a sweeping analysis of anti-Semitism as it breaks out in, the, in what we call the Middle Ages. Um, the obvious first uh, subject then is to talk about the Crusades as they were. And let me give a little bit of background. The, um, according to their calendar, 10,000 was a big deal. Not unlike, and you guys were all little kid, Kinderlach at the time, but um, the, if you maybe you read, recall reading about such a thing, there was in the year 2000 also what they call the Millennial Bug. Uh, and people with Y2K, and not just that, there was, there was um, all kinds of apocalyptic uh, predictions and, and uh, doomsday sayers and, and, and whatnot. Computer meltdown, all kinds of conspiracy theories. Well, you know, if that was true in 2000, you can imagine those nutty Christians with the year 1000, not so different. Um, and the fervor swept up much of the Christian world. Um, you know, Yashka was coming, don't you know? Uh, didn't work out quite that way. Um, he doesn't come. Um, so they do the logical thing under the circumstance and recalculated. Oops, not, we, did we say 1,000? We meant 1,100. Right? How convenient. By 1,200, they gave up the game and they waited until 2,000 again to, to start it up. Oh, well, then it was miscalculated too, but I think, I think most have given up. I'm sure the, the, the theories are out there still. The, uh, Sure they do, and every few years another another. Listen, uh, you know, to be fair, we've known such things ourselves, and we're going to see the messianic fervor sweep the Jewish world too. It is the most understandable human of uh, of phenomena that people looking at the dismal state of the world as it is would be looking towards the future, and in anticipation would would be a little bit overly uh, hopeful. The Roman Catholic Church then experiences a crisis in. 1054, not all at once, there's a whole process leading to it, but the year is given as the year of what's called, what they call the Great Schism. It's not the first schism in Christianity. We've, we've uh, discussed probably the large, largest early schism in Christianity was called the Monophysite uh, Schism, where the four, in response to the um, uh, Christian, the, 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 the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church's proclamation that Yoshka, this is in the 5th century, that Yoshka and um, Yoshka was 100% human and also 100% a Kutusbarov, uh, and all God too, so um, several groups did a calculation that 100 plus 100 does not equal, in fact, 100, and broke away from the church. Probably there were ethnic issues as well. They didn't identify with the Roman Catholics. So that, that first breakaway was the, um, was the Armenians, <coughs> the um, Ethiopians, the uh, Syrian, called the Jacobian Christians, and then the Egyptians, what are called the Copts. When uh, they left the church, you know what the Pope said. Oh, cop down. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> that was one schism, but it was small and maybe more manageable. In 1054, it would be a, 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 a schism that was a cataclysm uh, that, was, that was really, really um, traumatic for the church. The entire, much like the Roman Empire had cracked in half some eight centuries earlier, now the religion is cracking in half between the East and the West. 
and the Eastern, what are called the Eastern Orthodox branches of Christianity break away formally from the Roman Catholic Church, which is, um, which is now going into a, a whole kind of, uh, uh, as you said, a trauma over, over the incident. When you think of today, if you're, if you're familiar with the various uh, sects of Christianity, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, and other variations centered in Byzantium, and uh, they, they will have nothing to do now with the Western Church. There are all kinds of crises, multiple popes and patriarchs, and I'm not going to get into the whole discussion, but um, it's part of the understanding of where the Crusaders are coming from. Um, there is an eagerness in the West to control the East. They want to get back. They want to reunify the church. Remember that Christianity, not unlike Islam, is about world dominance. What they accuse the Jews of, they themselves are guilty of. They would like to take over the world. It's not just proselytizing, it's also political posturing. Um, and they want to control the East. Another factor leading to this. In the years 1064, all related all these things, 64, 65, um, there's a phenomenon, um, uh, some 12,000 Germans set sail, they make a pilgrimage going to the holy grave in the holy land of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Nazareth, Jesus' home, as they like to say it, um, and then they come back to Europe full of all kinds of, with travelogues and all kinds of adventures and stories to report back, and that creates something of, a, of an immediate sensation. People start talking about, hey, we should go to the holy land, but there are problems with the Holy Land, so the Holy Land is ruled by the infidel. Specifically now, it's the Fatimids, uh, one, of the, one of the dynasties of the, uh, based in Egypt of the, um, of the Muslims are ruling there, and the Christian world is not happy about that, and they want to do something about that. What's, what's the difference is between the, the Western Church and the Eastern Church, like Greek Orthodox, Icons, Protestantism? I'll give you a... Because it, 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 we, could, we could spend a long time analyzing it, and it's really not our topic in Jewish history. It's not that relevant, but I'll give you a general rule of thumb. I'll go even back to those monophysic, uh, uh, those four breakoffs. Generally speaking, they have their excuse for breaking away from the church is theological. As I said, you know, they have different ideologies, different theologies. The church, all the churches are heavily theological, by which I mean all kinds of theories about a Kaddish Baruch is something that the Torah is not. We recognize the Kaddish Baruch was ultimately unknowable, but they don't believe that. So in theory, there are ideological differences. In practice, it's really more cultural and political. They didn't like the supremacy of the church, so they went out and made their own, in their own back door. And that's why you can even hear it in the names. Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. Well, what's going on there? How come they can't all agree on one patriarchy? Well, that's, kind of the, that's part of the point. They don't believe in one patriarchy, because they like their own, speaking their own language. Because as much as they want to process and convert the world, each corner of the world would like their own supremacy. Thank you very much. Um, you find a pattern as well. The earlier the breakaway from the normative church, the more in common, generally, the, um, the, the sects uh, tend to have with, with Judaism. So that um, the Armenians, the, the Jacobians, the Egyptians, the, uh, the Copts, and the, and the, and the uh, Syrians um, when they have baptism, which is, which is an early idea in Christianity, their, their version of baptism is a full body immersion like our tefillah and a mikvah. Because that's, of course, where they get baptism from in the first place is, is, is tefillah and the mikvah. 
Um, whereas it's the late, you know, the, the church will eventually, much more influenced by the pagan, by the pagan religions, um, will adapt a sprinkling of water and, and other kinds of things that are further removed. So, so too one finds with the Eastern Orthodox, maybe a little bit more in common with classic uh, traditional Judaism, and um, and less so with the with the church as it evolves and becomes increasingly corrupt. So, in 1095, a turning point comes in the form of what's called the Clermont Council, uh, back in Clermont, in France, where Pope Urban II um, makes an official call on the aristocracy to go to the Holy Land and liberate it from the Muslim infidels. And by inference, since the Muslims are infidels, the Jews are sort of lumped together with them. And they offer a great deal. You go and you participate in this great crusading effort, hence the term crusades. Um, in uh, Hebrew, they're referred to as Masahat Slav, or the Tzalbanim, the journey of the Tzlav, the cross. Salbanim, those who bear the cross for the crusaders. Um, in English, English, the English term emphasizes what they're doing, the crusading, um, and it promises them if you go, you will be absolved from your sins, which is a great deal, honestly. You know, go kill a bunch of Jews and Muslims, and then you're completely forgiven. Do you realize how much easier that is than making tshuva? Our system is much more demanding. Well, that, that, that system contradicts itself as well. Rabbi paying money. Who said it didn't? They wouldn't argue with you. I know, like... Right, we'll get to paying money. That's going to be increasingly true. Right, exactly. We're going to talk about that, but that's, that's still a little bit off. We're, back, we're still back a thousand years ago in the church. Indulgences are going to come up in a, in a big way in a, within a few hundred years. Uh, they're going to, they're going to be a, a particular uh, an egregious example of the corruption of the church. But we're not quite there, and we're going to see how that practice will actually be influential among some Jews as well. <coughs> Who pay, they don't call it indulgences, but uh, the practice is, is, is oddly familiar, yeah. But I guess it's one question that I've always had. The, the Crusaders were only after the Arabs. I mean, they killed a couple of Jews, but did they actually go out and deliberately try to kill the Jews? They killed a lot of the Arabs. The, main, the goal was the Arabs. On the way down. Ooh, how mistaken are you? Let us count the ways. Uh, well, hold, sat, fasten your seatbelts. It's not a couple Jews. Was this the one where they did the, they went to the three cities? Yes, correct. That's that's coming around the corner, right? We say kinos over this. Kinos being um, um, kinot in the uh, right kinot meaning the um, liturgy that we say on, on, tish, on tisha b'av about, about exactly these uh, phenomena. Um, I once was asked to address the shul, and I said, yes, yes, today I'm the keynote speaker. The, uh, I'm sorry. So there are two groups of crusaders. There's There's one group that's called upon by the pope himself. They're the aristocracy, but not all the aristocracy. There's part of the aristocracy is comfortable and just fine, thanks very much. They're the landed aristocracy who have everything they need and aren't about to go pick up their lives, their pretty comfortable lives, and traipse across the world to, uh, to, to the Holy Land. But they got a lot of um, siblings. And some of the siblings, the older siblings, inherit the title and the land and the rest, and they're the landed aristocracy. But then you got a bunch of little brothers who didn't quite make out with the inheritance. So they're used to the comfortable lifestyle, but they have very little in terms of sustaining it. They don't have means, they don't have abilities. And now the Crusades promised these knights uh, a new, new turf, new opportunities abroad. And for all kinds of understandable social, social political reasons, 
that's very appealing to them. So that's one, they, they, uh, that's one social order that participates in the Crusades. Um, the also part of the problem here is that life expectancy around this time starts to increase and, and that it also feeds to the fewer prospects there are for inheritance. We're talking about the Crusaders right now. So um, that's one group of Crusaders. The second group of Crusaders coming from the polar opposite end of the social hierarchy are the, uh, the poor class, the poor people. And there's a figure now, I'm just going to mention him, I'm not going to give a whole analysis, you could look that up elsewhere. His name is Peter the Hermit. The Hermit? The Hermit. Peter the Hermit, who's a charismatic speaker, who creates what he calls the People's Crusade. People power. And it's not, it's not democratic populist uh, uh, organi grassroots organizing, but it's not unlike that insofar as trying to you know, the people who are completely dispossessed of any social uh, power or opportunities, <coughs> they're told now by this charismatic preacher that um, come and you can get a better life. We'll go, we'll liberate the Holy Land from the infidel, and you'll inherit it. They promised, they promised these people who are more like the rabble, um, not educated, <coughs> um, they appeal to the lower class which simultaneously appeals to the criminal element. The thugs of the day see also great opportunity. War is usually good for this level of, of, of the social um, classes. Now, who are the lower classes? These are people who know very little of the outside world. We call them parochial. They live in their own little region. As we said, they're illiterate. What they know, they've heard in Sunday church masses. Usually, preachers preaching about the beauty of Jerusalem and other sites, they have they've conjured an image. They know the Jews are Christ killers. Uh, they know that that's what they're filled with, at least. Little of it is based on reality. That's how they believe it. They do believe in it, and um, and they set off about the year, the next year after the Claremont Council in 1096 is officially given as the beginning of the Crusades, starting, originating in France. They'll pick up steam as they cross through Europe, uh, but that's, that's where the, as it were, the, the momentum starts, and it takes years. It's a process to take years. Now, what's going on in Eretz Israel during this period, in the Holy Land, there has been an ongoing feud slash war. It, 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 Percolates. It comes and goes in intensity between different factions, the Fatimids from Egypt, which, who are Shiites, and then the Seljuks, the Seljuks up in Turkey, who are Sunni. If I say Shiite versus Sunni, we talked about that? That's a familiar distinction? Yeah. Okay. Uh, they are, the Sunni and the Shiite, for anybody less familiar, um, are eternal enemies. And in the end of days, after they've gotten rid of the pagans and the Jews and the Christians are off the map, the ultimate war to end all wars from the Shiite perspective and uh, uh, um, justifying the horrific defeat in the Battle of Karbala many years earlier, they're going to finally get vengeance on the Sunni, and the Sunni have their own version of how the end of days is going to come out. Yes. <laughs> What's worse? Uh, from whose standpoint? Um, Shia. Shia, the Shia, are the ones to bring the world the lovely concept of jihad. But the, but, but the Sunni are not averse to the idea, even if it's not a, a, a uniquely, it's not, it's not a characteristically Sunni idea. They glommed onto it as radical Islam rose up in the 20th century and sort of took over in all aspects. 
And um, you and Elon brings up a classic example of what we consider really extreme radical Islam, the Wahhabi, which I would say not to be confused with wasabi, that's the green stuff you put on sushi, the Wahhabi um, in Saudi Arabia, and um, they're, they're uh, yeah, radical, that's a term for it. <laughs> what about them? They're radical too. They're also Sunni. <laughs> Boko Haram in, in Nigeria. I mean, there is, if, if you're interested, I actually do, I didn't do it this year, we had very little time. I don't, I'm not giving enough time in the mornings. <clears throat> but if the, the topic interests you, and you, I'm sure you can do better elsewhere, but if you happen to listen to my own share on the subject, I go into this in greater detail. I talk about the modern world too, and the uh, rise of, of radical Islam around the world as we, as we presently know it. So, meanwhile, back in Eretz Israel, so this, the Seljuks from Turkey and the Fatimids from Egypt are going at it. And even though the Fatimids are in charge in the Holy Land, they've gotten pretty weak. And it's not the first time we've seen this kind of dynamic when you have ongoing fighting between two factions. So both factions get weakened in the process. Um, examples in history that we've seen, the last two <coughs> rulers of the Hashmonaim, the brothers, the Hellenized brothers, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, are fighting with one another until Pompeius, the Roman general, moves in for the kill and takes over. And we saw it pretty recently with the various factions vying over Eretz Israel before the Muslim conquest. conquest. Uh, the Sassanids, the Persian Sassanids against the Byzantines, and they also weakened one another, at which point the third party, the Muslims in that case, moved in for the kill. Now <coughs> it's, the, it's the Crusaders' turn. And on Tisha B'Av, the Crusaders set out from France. They move, east, they move eastward. Um, Tisha B'Av, we understand, is the day of, of calamity. All calamity, from our perspective, is, is on Tisha B'Av. That's why it's kind of heresy to claim that there's another Holocaust day. Um, the, Isra the secular Israelis have made up a Holocaust day. The international community, just, just a few days ago, had their own international Holocaust day. But from a traditional Jewish perspective, to say that there's some kind of an independent day is problematic since we've always had a day. It's called Tisha B'Av that we understand that all calamity emanates from then when the Shekhinah goes into hiding, as it were, when the Shekhinah is in a state of Hester Ponim, which we discussed a few weeks ago, um, we understand that everything bad emanates from that. And, um, <coughs> and, and indeed, Tisha B'Av will be a day. That's why the halachas are, don't go traveling. Don't do anything that might be even remotely uh, dangerous on that day. It does not bode well for the Jews. A couple of examples, but there are many more. On Tisha B'Av in the year Holdathad, and Tisha B'Av in the year 1290, they exiled the Jews from England. One of the first massive exiles, uh, but not the only one. Uh, similarly, in 1492, the exile, the, the, the Spanish expulsion will also be situated around the 9th of Av. 1942, they, de they, they begin the final deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, in, in, in also in Tisha B'Av. 1994, feels like yesterday, was, and this just came up in the news and is still in the news, in Buenos Aires, Ar Argentina, um, they, uh, they bombed, and uh, who bombed whom was about to be re uh, revealed before the, uh, the, the uh, man disclosing it was murdered last week uh, in Argentina. Follow the news, which I don't think you necessarily have to do, but that's what happened. Anyway, in 1994, 85 people were killed in the Jewish community center in Buenos Aires, again on Tisha B'Av. Uh, I just read an article recently for the 15th of, uh, of the, the fast, the, the one that we just had. The uh, Asara Batavis? Yeah. Right, so the tenth. Right, um, and it's uh, the head rabbi, the rabbi of Israel. Mm -hmm. 
came up with a statement saying. You mean the chief rabbi? The chief rabbi. He's not the head rabbi. The, the chief rabbi. It's, it's, he's a functionary of, of, of the state, but has very little very little um, is, um, how do, regard in the general rabbinic circles. The, the chief rabbi of Israel. Really? Sure. No, they're not. Often they are, but that doesn't mean anything. They just have official. They just it's just a job. Like it Other rabbis get jobs teaching in there. No, isn't like for Rabbi Yosef? He was, and then and that's an example of somebody who happened to be of a senior status who happened to also have this job. But the job doesn't necessarily mean authority or prominence at all. Again, I mean, it's hard to be chief rabbi without being somebody prominent. But don't be misled by the title. The, the, the title Rabbi, often reflects nothing. The Rabbi Yosef was head of a sect of Jews, not, not an area. Yes, but he was he he not as yet. He was very big, even when he was chief rabbi. The experience, the position, actually helped him and and gave him greater prominence. That's true. But and arguably, it was only after he held the position that he became Rabbi Yosef in the way that people think of him today. The, the chief rabbi of Israel. Anyway, that was all a tangent within a tangent. The, the, Your the question chief, was: The chief rabbi of Israel came up with a statement uh, saying that uh, he claimed that the Haredi Jews should follow that day as the Holocaust Memorial Day. Which day? Uh, the oh tenth. no, and because no, there's reason for that. that right, right. But is that that's okay? Because I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's it is a primary day, and there's a Gemara about this and too. And people accept that. It's it's not it's not really that controversial because it's <laughs> it's it's when I say there's a piece of heresy in calling a Holocaust Memorial Day and all those kinds of things, that's to make it completely dis- dissociated from the the, the Chorban. To say that um, Asar Batavis is quasi Holocaust Day itself is really <laughs> saying it's all connected to the Chorban Beis Hamikdash. It's not problematic, is my point. Right. Uh, even though even though Tisha B'Av is the primary day, but certainly Asar Batavis has its own function. And do Haredi are Haredi starting to follow that as a Holocaust Day? No, I don't think anybody. I, don't, I, I, I haven't heard about statement? that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a concept like that. I mean, it's not off, is my point, but it's not part of people's consciousness. I don't think. Okay, uh, thousands were slaughtered, including Jews, contrary to what you asserted before, and most infamously, but don't get confused, because sometimes um, we learn about things, some things more prominently than the others, there's, there's terrible distortion in history, uh, it happens till today, this just came up in Gemara's here this morning, um, there are a lot of victims of terrorism, and for all kinds of unusual, arbitrary reasons, some of them become more famous than others. And it seems almost unfair. It, 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 it distorted these three young teenagers who were murdered this summer got huge press, but other victims are go almost ignored. Well, I mean, their blood is redder than their blood. A lot of it is politicized. A lot of it is. I mean, like we 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 said this in share this morning. A lot of the reason for. Um, I mean, it's not a hundred percent certain, but very likely that the government knew of their murder early on, but kept that secret, understanding how irrational public opinion is, how the press can feed into it and create a whole momentum that would, let's say, for example, um, create a, a great groundswell for to, to enable the government to go to war, and that that was a calculated uh, policy on the government's part um, to capitalize on these three young men, but other people will be murdered and you know nobody even knows about it and they don't attend the funeral, and uh, Paris was similar with the, listen, I mean, everybody who dies is a, it's, it's, it's dying on Kiddush Hashem, it's a tragedy, but it just seems to me odd that some, some get greater... Uh, I think it's about the well, the right, for sure. When it makes better press, when it's a better story, more people care about it. I'm just pointing out how I'm pointing out how irrational that is. 
500 people uh, died the same week in a big in a bigger terrorist attack. They, right. Uh, to school and nobody. And people that. didn't bat an eyelash. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the parents. Was yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so the press is given, or the, the keynotes in this case was written about the what Akiva referred to before as the Jews in the Rhineland, and there have been Jews, there have been holy Torah communities in the Rhineland. We spoke, for example, about Rav Amnon of Mainz in the three communities: Spires, Vermes, uh, Vermes, and and Mainz, um, as 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 these community and um, and and whole communities are are um, massacred, uh, slaughtered. Um, we say in our davening, uh, they compose sometime after they're dedicated to the victims of these massacres, we say a special tefillah on Shabbos, and, um, Shabbos morning called Avarachamim, after the Kriya Saftara. I would imagine it's familiar to everybody. So you'll, you'll keep that in mind, that's, that's desiccating the crusaders. But just because we talk about the, the tragedy in the Rhineland, um, it was really all across Europe. And anytime the crusaders, uh, picture who are the crusaders after we've described them, their interest is money, bloodlust, rape, all kinds of savage displays. Jews are free, open territory, whatever you want. You're on your way, you're hungry, you're traveling. Good, a Jewish community around the corner. We'll get food, we'll be satisfied, we'll satisfy our tithes, we'll kill a bunch of Jews. The church promises all kinds of salvation for people who kill Jews. It's a win-win proposition, except for the Jews. Um, they don't just pick on the Jews. They certainly pick, up on, pick on Muslims. Uh, they don't even stop there. As they move east, they start attacking the Eastern Christians. And here you already hear, you know, this is a, this is a family fight too. It's the West against the East, um, especially when they get to Istanbul. Not Istanbul. That's, that's a, an anachronism. It's not yet Istanbul. It's Constantinople still in Byzantium. The Crusaders attack the Eastern Christians. Uh, they steal holy objects. They say, these are ours. They're not really yours anyway. Uh, and it's a religious war uh, of unprecedented uh, barbarism. Yeah? So they were single-handedly going after Jews more than Muslims? I don't think so. But Jews were easy targets because there was little. There was, who was going to protect the Jews? The Muslims, at least you had to be. They had a whole, they had a whole, whole governments, whole armies that would back up the Muslims. The Jews were powerless. And the, their own local countries could care less if you massacred them. They finally reach Palestine. They initially avoid the heavily populated cities. Um, and they're, strateg they're strategizing and they're figuring out what they're going to do. And they start very carefully. There's an initial defeat. The Fatimids win at first. Um, but then in 1099... They breach the walls of Yerushalayim. They come in from what they call Stork's Tower, which has anybody here, I do this tour a lot, walked around the, what they call the Ramparts Walk, the walls of the city around the Christian Muslim quarters. Okay, so in the... Eh, maybe not. I agree. Yeah, no, unfortunately. But it's the northeastern corner of, the, of, the, of those towers, of, of the old city, is that tower where they initially breached the walls. They initially actually came in. The first site they beheld was what we think of as Nebi Samuel, Kevish Shmuel and Abi, up on top, what we, we looked at last night from, the, uh, from Haradar. Um, and they, they came in there, they called it um, Har Simcha. The, uh, uh, in French, how is that? Well, they have a French term for it, I forget what it is. Um, the Mount of Joy, uh, and because uh, they, they first beheld Jerusalem from there. And then from there, they went in, and um, they'll break into the old city, and they 
essentially massacre everybody, including the Jews. There are Jews present. There is, uh, we don't know this for sure, but this is the first time we hear a story, possibly, possibly a legend, of them hoarding, taking the Jews and crowding them into a shul and burning the shul down, which is an image that we have very much in our minds from the Holocaust. It may be that, this, it, that such, a, such a tragedy happened as far back as the Crusaders. The, um, the Jews are located at this point around there, it's Israel. You know, we're, we're a tenacious bunch. We stick to our, our, our uh, you know, priorities. <clears throat> and they're Jews in Tiberia, in Ramla. Ramla, under the Muslims, was a capital of Eretz Israel. Ramla was built by the Muslims as a center and, and as a whole other topic, but not very Jewishly uh, important. Um, we said that's where the Karaites are centered till today. Uh, there were Jews in Ashkelon, in Caesarea, down in Gaza. Uh, and many of the communities suffer at the hands of the, of the, of the Crusaders, not all of them. Uh, when the Crusaders conquered Jerusalem for the first time since the Hashmonaim, back in the mid to late Second Temple period, Eretz Yisrael becomes an independent state. It's called the Kingdom of Jerusalem under the Crusaders. It's a shocking thing, but under the Romans, Byzantines, and all the early Arabs, it was just one of their vassals. It was, their, it was a sub-component of their greater empires. Never, pri never a priority. Um, Yushalayim, Eretz Yisrael has never been a primary place for the Muslims, ever. Only under the Christians and the Jews. Um, so the kingdom of, of Yerushalayim is, is the capital. Um, and the... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's also the first time that Jerusalem is a prominent city since the time of the Hashmonaim. The uh, First Crusade is often called, I think reasonably, the apogee of the Roman Catholic Church. That means the high point. The, um, after the victory, <laughs> you had a really unusual dynamic. You had all these crusaders, yes, we won, and then they leave because the job was done. And they leave Eretz Yisrael with a very problematic shortage of manpower. Because if you conquer a land, that's one thing. But to sustain your sovereignty is another thing. So one of the things that they have to do, having no choice, since their manpower is, is limited, they start building, with European architecture and lots of funds, they build these massive fortresses. And one of the reasons why, if you go around and you, you really do tour around Eretz Israel, you find lots and lots all over the country of crusader fortresses, sturdy as anything. Some of them standing. Uh, anybody been up, for example, to... Um, to Kochava uh, Yardin, uh, which is called um, beautiful view in French, Bellevue. Uh, the um, uh, go up to above Beit Shan, and they have a whole Crusader fortress up there. That, among other things, is fantastic if you're a tour guide to play capture the flag. I've done that with great effect. I do that for sure. Unless, but then they come out from the national. Uh, I get in trouble, I guess, with um, some of these guys. Like last night, uh, with the with the. Uh, because it's a national park, so the, uh, the people there say, you can't play here, this is a holy place, it's a national park. They said, yes, or what? Um, so uh, anyway, they're very sturdy structures because they gotta, they gotta be sturdy. The, how, are the, how are the crusaders going to maintain their authority here? They don't kill all the residents. So the residents remain, the locals are still Arab, Muslims, and they're not happy about the crusaders, they're just simply under the crusader dominance, at least for a period. Crusader period of rule in Eretz Israel is among the rockiest, least secure. 
for all the reasons you can imagine, they're here, but they're not really here. And the local populace is not exactly subservient, and there's all kinds of rebellion and attacks, and it's shaky, it goes back and forth, and they have to constantly redraw the map. Um, life in Eretz Israel is not what a lot of the Crusaders bargained for. Great, now we got all this land, but what land is it? They come with their clunky Crusader army uh, armor. Um, we have all kinds of records of this. Among other things, they wore their armor around. Can you imagine walking around looking like that in the Middle East? Among other things, they all stank. They smelled the high heaven, and they had very poor personal hygiene. And so the place was a cesspool. That's the way, that's how they lived. They also lived pretty, um, uh, pretty degenerate lifestyles. Remember, we're not talking about the cream of the crop, crop of European aristocracy. Um, so, so there were all kinds of problems um, that were here. Uh, <coughs> eventually, they, a lot of them leave because of the difficulty of life here. Um, there's several crusades, which means, you know, as the, as the powers that be in Eretz Israel start to weaken, there's increased momentum in Europe at various junctures. Let's go back and strengthen the crusade. And so you have what's called the Second Crusade about a half a century later from 1145 to 1149. And the Second Crusade is mostly an abysmal failure. And it's more or less spells the beginning of the downfall, very gradual downfall, of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a downfall that continues till today. They're still struggling. Um, they're not taken seriously, and that's increasingly true with uh, modernity. Um, suddenly, what had previously, the, the conception of the world's mind of the church was that they were invincible. There was nothing they couldn't do, and if they can go conquer the Holy Land from the infidel, uh, nothing's going to stop them. After all, that must show that they have, um, you know, Yashka's own approval. You have to realize the, um, the not today too, much of the church are theological literalists. They assume, um, Calvinism kind of works this way too, uh, they assume that what you see is what you get. If you lead, for example, a prosperous lifestyle, well, that's proof that God's love you, that God loves you. And if you don't, much like they always said about the Jew being the wandering, despised Jew, well, that's proof that because the Jew rejected God, so God rejects the Jews. They take things literally. So if the church is successful, so great, we're the, we're on top of the world. And if the church starts to be defeated, that's also a heavenly sign. That's, that's how they tend to look at things, and we're going to see this increasingly in history, how, how, they, how they understand um, the world around them. We'll, be, we'll revisit the Crusades, and we're not done. Um, right now, at least in the um, 11th and 12th centuries, they are, for a period at least, um, sovereign in Jerusalem. They're going to lose Jerusalem after about a century there. Uh, they're going to be pushed up. Their bases after Jerusalem is going to be in Akko in the north. Um, these are tumultuous times, and so you know you picture the Crusaders, and then the, the fact that we have some of our uh, most famous Gedolim who coexisted—it's remarkable. You know, Rashi was sitting and writing Rashi while this is all taking place. How could he do that? There's a story about Rashi. Yeah. In fact, there's several, and I'm about to tell them. Uh, one of the figures. Actually, I don't, I don't have many people to talk about. Today we're going to, we have more to say on Rashi. But I'm going to say one of Rashi's uh, contemporaries, uh, slightly older, is Rav Nosson ben Yechiel, who's I've been mentioning before. He's the author of the longer, more famous dictionary called the Aruch. Often on the pages of the Gemara, there's a reference to the Aruch, especially the dictionary, right? So you get words and phrases from this dictionary. Rav Nosson ben Yechiel lived in Rome. 
he was a student of Rav Moshe Hadarshan and another an, a, a figure named Rav Matzliach, who he was a student of Rav Haigon, trying to connect all the dots. Um, he takes a previous version of the dictionary that we talked about from the Gaonim from the 9th century, also called the Aruch, and he expands upon it immensely, vastly improves upon the work. He, uh, it's, it's, it's an uh, impressive display. He has a complete mastery of the writings and teachings of Rabbeinu Gershom, who we learned was the Moragola, of Rabbeinu Hananel, of Rav Nisin, the Mafteach, um, he, figured, he, fe he features many, many excerpts of lost sparring uh, that he clearly had access to. He himself was a polyglot. He spoke multiple languages miraculously. How did they do that? Those Europeans, I tell you, they put us Americans to shame. Uh, so he was fluent in, um, he could explain Hebrew and Aramaic terms in, get this, Arabic, Persian, Greek, Latin, French, uh, and even Slavonic. Can you do that? Didn't think so. Okay. Slavonic. How's your Slavonic? I can speak a little super Croatian. My mother was born in Zagreb. Uh, yeah, let me see. I, I learned this when I went traveling with my grandparents in Europe. Ukoko sate yedemo means when do we eat. I learned a lot of valuable expressions in Serbo-Croatian. Oh, you're, are you writing it all down? It's, I know, it was fast, because it's not so important. That's, but that's it's, crucial. You want to impress your friends at cocktail parties, I guess, so let me give you these. Uh, okay, <laughs> you can translate Hebrew and Aramaic into Arabic, Persian, Greek, Latin, French, and Slavonic, and if you didn't get that, I'll, I'll, I'll email it to you. I speak, he, yeah, he didn't, yeah. What's the origin? It's, it's, it's one of the communities that was originally, was once upon a time Yugoslavia. No, but the language, is it a Latin language? No, it's, um, it's, it's Slavic. These are Slavic family languages, the same family as Russian and, uh, and Polish and such. Yeah. The, um, together with the Rif, and we're about to meet Rashi, the Aruch will become one of the original Rishonim that will facilitate learning during these times and encourage learning, really, because now that there's the Gaonim aren't there and the Jews are, are on a, an ever-declining level of understanding, they need these guides to get to the basic text. I mean, if we think of ourselves as relatively pathetic today, they were starting to feel a need for some reference, some, some, some reference guides, and, and the Aruch was, was a major one. A uh, little phenomenon that I think is worthy of a, of a quick mention, um, during this period, the period of the Gaonim into the period of the Rishonim, there's actually a well-known yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. <coughs> it was called Yeshivas Gaon Yaakov, sometimes referred to as Eretz Hatzvi, the, uh, the land of the deer, was another term for Eretz Yisrael. There is a yeshiva that, that takes its name. It's based on this. It's clearly not the same yeshiva. Yeshivas Gaon Yaakov, it moved. Depending, I remember the times here are anything but stable, so often there's, there's massacre and disaster and earthquake and such, so they would move and sometimes they temporarily, temporarily deceased, ceased from existing and then it would be refounded. It was, it was alternately in Tiveria and later in Yerushalayim. We find it at one point in Ramla. It started in the 6th century. The last we know of it is the 13th century. Uh, as, as, as we like to say about long-standing yeshivas, what a deficit. The... Uh, we know uh, that the leaders were 
mostly Kohanim. There was also a prominent family from Beis David named Ben Meir, and it's not the first time I'm mentioning it. Who remembers, and I'd be really impressed if you got this because I throw so much information at you, but who remembers the figure Aaron Ben Meir? Is it Nobel at all? He was the one who, during the term, during the life of Rav Sa'adji Gaon, tried to create his own independent calendar system from independent from Bavel, and Rav Sa'adji Gaon squashed him. One letter around the entire Mediterranean world, and he was put out of business. But he also came from this family, and they were also very connected to the yeshivas Gaon Yaakov. It will be destroyed in the year 1073 by the Seljuks uh, when they conquered the city. Uh, it moves north. It goes to places like Tzor, Tripoli, and Damascus. Um, we know there's a, there's a, a fairly famous Jewish... Talmud Chacham and poet by the name of Rav Yehuda Al Kharizi, who is from Spain, in the um, a little bit later than, than the period we're holding, his dates are 1165 to 1234. 12, 12, a little distracting, but the point. Um, he was, among other things, he translated the Rambam's works. Um, so Rav, Rav, uh, Rav Al Kharizi travels to Eretz Yisrael, goes to Damascus, and he. he um, describes meeting the Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva's Gaon Yaakov um, uh, a tzaddik by the name of Tzad, um, Tzadok HaTzadik he was the, Rav Tzadok was his name, um, and he actually is mentioned in the most famous poem Rav Al-Kharizi's poem called Tach Kemoni uh, from 1218 and that, so the Yeshiva actually played a role, uh, I mention it I don't think it played a, a central role per se in the ongoing Masura of our, of our Torah but it's helpful to know that there's Torah in Eretz Yisrael during this, um, this period when otherwise Eretz Yisrael we don't hear about so much. It, his full name was Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki. Um, he's alternately referred to as Rabban Shel Yisrael. Both uh, acronyms spell Rashi. He's born in 1040, the same year that Rabbeinu Gershom died in Troyes in France. Um, he dies in 1105. And about Rashi, we have, I'm going to mention just a few of them. I imagine you've heard more. There are many, many, many legends to reflect. You have to be careful with legends. What do they mean exactly? In the case of Rashi, it reflects his status and his revered position in Torah. It doesn't really matter if they're true. That's how Klal Yisrael regards Rashi. So in one famous story... Before he was born, his father was a poor vintner. Vintner means he did he worked with wine. Um, it was a very common Jewish trade. Why? Why did Jews want to work with uh, make wine? Excellent, of course, because non-Jewish wine is not kosher wine. If they were touching the wine, so Jews were often vintners. Um, and the father and the mother were childless for years, and they davened. And the father became an owner of a precious pearl. Uh, and in his poverty, he wasn't sure what to do with it. Oh, and I'm sure it is. I'm sure. It, oh, yeah, you're right. But it's not said about. It's not said that it's Rashi. It was told anonymously. And um, and this part is also omitted because they're very PC in the in, in Hayasod. So they um, at one point the author authorities, the pagan Christian authorities, uh, get word that he owns this pearl, and they're about to come and confiscate it. Uh, to try to take it away to use for a Vodazara, and instead of hiding it and risking the possibility that they might not find it, he might be able to keep it, he decides under no circumstances going to allow these Christians to take it and use it for their idolatry, so he throws it into the sea. 
Or can you just swallow it for the moment? <laughs> I know. It's, what a, you, pearl. <laughs> it's a pearl. It's true. Um, and he is informed by Eliyahu and Navi that they will, after losing this glittering, this glowing uh, pearl, that they will merit a son who will himself illuminate the world. Rashi. Well, apparently. And Rashi's mother... Don't get ahead of me now. Rashi's mother becomes pregnant. Baruch Hashem. And she is visiting the community of worms, Vermeis. She's visiting the community. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a French horseman comes trampling by and almost kills her. And she backs into a wall and miraculously, a niche opens up from behind her and she's able to move into the wall and escape a certain death at the feet of the horse as it tramples by her. Um, and you can still visit uh, the place in Worms where such a story is said to have happened. And if you believe that one, well, I've got some <clears throat> swampland. In, no, no. Okay, listen, these are, these are legends. It may be true. I don't know that it's not true any more than I know the, that it is true. The thing with the pearl, did they, did a fish swallow that? No, that's, that's the yeah, that's the yeah, that's the, that they merge all these stories together to come up with with one one collective There's one. Yeah. Uh, no, they were in French. They were French. Rashi was born in Troyes in, 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 in the south of France. Um, the last legend is maybe what you were referring to earlier. Um, one of the earlier crusaders, Godfrey of Bouillon, excellent soup there. Um, Godfrey um, visits Rashi before the first crusade. Uh, Rashi was a tzaddik. He knew, he knew that he knew stuff that the average person didn't know. He says, I want a prediction. What's about to happen? Uh, what, what is our future? Rashi predicts, he tells him that when he returns, he'll come back uh, with only three horses. In other words, it's not going to end well. You know, you're going to set you're going to set out on the crusade with a whole army and in, 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 in infantry, and you're going to return with but three horses. Isn't that in the book? No, it's a prediction. <laughs> uh, this is a trick. It's a prediction, and it's a legendary story. And I wouldn't say it necessarily is true, and so don't ask Kashi's against Rashi. It is and isn't at the same time. Okay, uh, at the end of the after the initial defeat, Godfrey himself is indeed humbled. However, he succeeds in returning with not three but four horses. And he's going to finally make amends and he's going to go back and kill Rashi for his false prediction. And as he enters the city of Troyes, uh, a scaffolding falls and kills one of the horses. Not him? No, no unfortunately, not him. Because he goes back for, this, for the second time around and there he is successful. It's true. Wait, does he go talk to Rashi though? Oh, I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> what, are you trying to make a movie version of this or something? And walks away. It's like, don't make me put All of these right stories here. aside, honestly, the greatest miracle of all the legends, the greatest miracle is Rashi himself. And that one I can vouch for. That one we don't need any supernatural uh, understanding to recognize uh, what Rashi achieved in his lifetime is something that uh, most mortals can't even dream of. He writes volumes and volumes on the Chumash, on Navi, on, on um, Ksuvim, except for Divra Hayyamim, meaning 23 out of 24 books of the, of the Tanakh, we have Rashi. Um, Rashi writes, not entirely, but almost on the entire Talmud. He writes other works too, but these are his, these are his most famous achievements. Consider, Rashi wrote these vast, vast commentaries um, with a quill pen 
on vellum sheets, meaning really painstaking, difficult, not easy to write with or on materials. He did this while running his own vineyard and while the Crusaders raged in the background. We tend to picture Rashi sitting up in his gilded life in the ivory tower, sitting writing Rashi. But he had a real life of great difficulty and persecution himself. And um, he looked out the window to see what the carnage was for today. Yeah, wow, wow, what a what a miracle Rashi was. Um, he has he has <coughs> he has such an uncanny precision. He's so careful. He's so he, um, his work reflects one line can be studied, and they do this in yeshivas um, for days, weeks, months, in its in its profundity, in the multi layers of understanding that Rashi has. Uh, his, his perush, and we can all vouch for this following statement, his commentaries makes what's previously inaccessible suddenly open to the masses of Jews till today, both the Chumash and the Talmud. Today, we think of the Talmud, thinking of the Talmud without Rashi is unimaginable. They're inseparable. Now, his grandson, Rabbein Tam, who we'll learn about as Rosh Hashem next week, said Rashi on, the, on, on Shas is, is a super masterpiece. In any other person's life, it would have been their crowning achievement. Rabbeinu Tam said, I'm not sure, but it's possible I could have duplicated Rashi on Talmud. When you hear statements like that, it's not arrogant. It's simply just looking at the accomplishment and saying, I think I could have achieved that. That's all he was saying. But he said, I don't know if any mortal could have written Rashi on Chumash. I know somebody said this. There's somebody who I know of who excels at taking complex ideas and, and rendering them in simple ways, simple accessible ways. And one time that person, this is a public personality, I'm choosing not to, not to say his name. Uh, anyway, somebody once said, oh, you're so simplistic. And the person responded, well, if you have several hours, I could make it much more um, complex and obtuse for you. It's actually a sign of brilliance if you can take a complicated idea and put it in clear terms that ordinary people can relate to. Well, what a gift. That's what Rashi does for us. And can you imagine life without Rashi? What do they do before Rashi? Yes, yeah, I'm going to get to it. Can't give away my goodies. We'll do that when we talk about Rabbeinu Tam. Now we're focusing on Rashi. Um, without Rashi on Chumash, a Jew is doomed to a life as an Amharitz. If you do not know Rashi's commentary on the simple Chumash, um, you don't know basic Judaism. It's an admission requirement in yeshivas over the ages, places like uh, Yeshivas Chokhmah in Lublin. If you did not know Rashi, you did not get in. What about before then? How does he make this statement with knowing that Rashi did never suggest? What's that? How did he make this statement that if you don't know Rashi, you're not going to No, in, in, in days, <laughs> we, we talked about this. Prior to Rashi, they were on a higher level. These Katnu Hadaras, we keep saying, were continually declining. What was previously accessible, we can no longer figure out, and that's why Rashi becomes indispensable. There are over 200 super commentaries on Rashi, meaning people's life achievements is that they explain what Rashi means. 
uh, not explaining because Rashi is pretty clear, but um, elaborating on Rashi. Um, some of the famous works we're going to meet, some of the great great uh, scholars who do this, they include the Mizrahi, the Maharal has a Gurarye commentary on Rashi, the Taz, the Levush, Siti Chachamim, Ramban comments on Rashi, Rabbeinu Bachia, and others. Um, now, he was often offered rabbinic positions around Troyes and elsewhere in the French countryside, and he, um, he says no, he's not interested. He's learning L'Shem Shemayim, and he's, 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 he's working for Klal Yisrael, but not by taking any position. Um, what he does agree, though, is that Jews around the world start to hear of Rashi's greatness, and he corresponds with them, and often people send shilas, and he, he renders Pesach Halacha. That's, that's important to know, because we don't think of Rashi, even on Rashi, on, on, on the Talmud, primarily as a posek. He usually is there by his own admission explaining the simple meaning of the text. Occasionally he renders a halacha, or his commentary reflects his attitude towards the halacha. Um, but there is a whole other vast literature where he's mamish paskening. He's got a lador. And um, we know that many of his piske halacha are mentioned in the Tosafos, in the Mordechai, in the Rush, and other works. His general approach, uh, we find certain patterns. When a Jew's parnasa is at stake, when people's money is at stake, Rashi's generally lenient. He wants to help Jews with their parnasa, knowing how difficult that is, especially in the world as it was. Um, nobody has smichu. We talked about that at another time. Smichu was destroyed by the Romans. He's Rabban Shel Yisrael, and we're going to talk about the. We're going to talk about titles. Titles will are already reappear in these days as a way of legitimating the authority and the scholarship of the of the people, but it's not smicha. Even till today, we don't have authentic smicha. It's just it's a way of somehow trying to make a make a meaning out of the confused sense of Jewish authority as as it exists since the Horban. Yeah. Are there carrots? Are there still carrots? No, 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 like in the summer they show rampant. Sure, uh, Rashi's there. Rashi's already alive at near the end of their heyday, but they're absolutely a virus. Is that why he needed a title? Ah, that would make. I see the connection you're making. That's reasonable. It makes sense. I don't know if he used the title, but uh, but certainly the Jews referred to him as such. Um, he, in one instance, in in one sack. The, a person asked him, does he need really to be so careful with Minhagim? After all, Minag is not in the Rabbanon, and it's certainly not in the Raisa. And Rashi responds sharply. He's very machmir. He says, no, when it comes to Minhagim, Minag Abusinu we uphold the Minhagim as long as they are legitimate, which is a view reflected in later postkim as well. Minhag, uh, as, the, as the Chasim Sofer says, Minag that most of Kali Yisrael is keeping, like let's say wearing a kippah, is a, is a good example actually takes on the force of a nedadiraisa, of a vow, as if we all collectively vowed to wear a head covering of sorts, um, in which case uh, it's, it's, it's Kodesh Kedoshim, you can't, you can't violate it. Uh, Rashi had some, interest, had some great teachers. Uh, one of his primary teachers was Rav Yaakov ben Yakar, who he learned from in Worms. Rav Yaakov was one of the students of Rabbeinu Gershom, and so we connected Rashi to the Masorah. He's the grand student, as it were, of Rabbeinu Gershom. He learned by Rav Yaakov for 15 years. Later, he learns with a student of Rav Haigon, named Rav Eliezer Yitzchak Halevi. Rashi was a really good student, like some of you too. And Rashi also kept a really good, uh, witness for yourselves, a very good <coughs> notebook um, that later became the prized possession of the Tosafos. What's the notebook called? HaKotras. 
a countress. Perish a countress in the countress, in the notebook of Rashi, who becomes a treasure trove of halacha, hashkafa, of commentary, of understanding the simple shot on the daf. Uh, Rashi kept that, and of course, in the countress, you, you, you're, expre- you're effectively seeing the Messiah as it's channeled through, through Rashi's own great teachers. The uh, <clears throat> at one point the Crusaders had murdered twelve thousand Jews in that's a few that's a few more than a couple in uh, the city of Lorraine, also just in the first the year, just the city of Lorraine, oh, yeah. twelve thousand wow. Jews uh, in tw- in ten ninety six, and um, among the victims were his the second Rebbe, Rebbe Eliezer Yitzchak had three sons who were murdered. And in response, um, I think this is important because it humanizes Rashi. We realize he was a real person. He lived a life. He suffered tragedy and loss. And he actually composed one of the slichos that we say. It's called um, Hashem Elokei Tzvakos. We say it on every era of Rosh Hashanah. He also wrote uh, another one of the slichos that we say on Som Gedalia called Az Terem uh, Nimtuhu. Um, Rashi traces lineage. He's said to have been the 33rd generation descended from, Rabbeinu, from, from Rabbi Yochanan Asandlar, one of the Tanaim. Um, and Rabbi Yochanan traced his ancestry back to um, David Melech. So that's one. It's, not, it's David from Hillel's side, though. So it's maternal, ultimately. So this is, it's not from here that Mashiach, I, I think, will come. Uh, but we'll hear of descendants of Rashi that include the Maharshal in the 16th century and others. Um, there are other great rabbis who can trace from different sides of the Davidic family. Uh, to see, make a note of this. Um, the Abarbanel, the great Abarbanel from the 15th century. Um, he, his family, the whole Abarbanel family, traces their their, um, their their ancestry back to David. The Maharal could do the same. There's a great family from Baghdad called the Sassoon family who, who have a tradition also <laughs> to go back to David Melech. Rashi has two, some say three, famous daughters. He has no sons. Their names are Yocheven and Miriam, and if there was a third, her name, her name is given as Rachel. Do they wear Um That seems to be, there's such, there's such, there's such an indication that they did, um, which is often brought by feminists as an example of why women can and should wear tefillin, and is soundly rejected by any posek who deals with the topic today, and that's not our topic right now. But um, the Gemara says, even more authoritative than Rashi's daughters, um, that, that Michal Bashal wore tefillin. Also not a proof for the practical halacha as it would appear today. Not our topic right now. As tempting as it is to slide into it, I want to, I want to finish Rashi today. If we finish in time, we can schmooze about it afterwards. The, um, as with everything, and you can send me emails always. Um, they were unusual. Most women in these days were illiterate. Didn't mean they were, the women were stupid. It just meant they didn't. there was no point in learning. They had different roles and, and jobs, um, but uh, Yocheved and Miriam were, were Rashi's scribes and assistants. Um, they took down a lot of his, a lot, a lot of Rashi. Um, and it's interesting, in Rashi's family, we're going to see a uh, certain prominence of many of the women, not just Yocheved and Miriam. Um, they marry well. Their husbands, Yocheved married Rav Mer ben Shmuel, uh, and Yocheved, and, excuse me, Yocheved and Miriam marries Rav Yehuda ben Nosan, Who's the Rivan? Anybody know who the Rivan is and why it's relevant to all of us here this year? Uh, Rashi never finishes Perush on Makos. And at the end of the third chapter, the Rivan, his son in law, does that for him. 
and it's similar but different style. You'll look, peek at the last few pages of Rashi, and you'll see it's no longer Rashi. And in fact, in Rashi says, this is where Rabbeinu finishes his perush, and the Rivan picks up and finishes the Masechta. That was the only thing... No, no, no. Uh, one of, no, no. Uh, Yocheved uh, has famous sons, including the Rashbam and Rabbeinu Tam. And... Um, the Rashbam finishes his perush is, is a major perush on Baba Bastra. There are other holes. Uh, there are other, other, other areas that um, Rashi on the Darim is not Rashi and, and, and other, other, other examples of that. Um, in terms of his style, Rashi is the first to admit any Yodea. I don't know. Uh, which you have to realize again the intellectual I, we've, we've discussed this before I think the intellectual honesty of people like Rashi I think sometimes it takes somebody so great like Rashi to be able to say oh yeah I have no idea no idea not a clue and what he's doing is very humbly he's encouraging you and me the students to say you know I can't figure this out but um, Ilan I'm sure you have a good idea maybe you could fill out fill in where I, I left off you know, I'm sure that bothered him that he didn't know it absolutely did but, but sometimes if you're intellectually honest you don't have an answer I remember there's an expert tour guide in Eretz Israel who I, who I had guide my students to teach them um, in my, when I ran the tour guide course. And one thing I noticed, because I've, I've been on many tours with him, is that he never, <laughs> he never didn't know. He always had an answer. And because I got so used to this expert tour guide, and he really is great. I mean, really is fantastic. His knowledge is, is, is impressive. But then I picked up, I noticed after a while, he always has an answer, even for the most uh, obscure kind of question. And it occurred to me, He's bluffing. And I started to notice certain patterns, like when he didn't know, he, he, he was a fabulist. And because he knew so much more than the average guy, he could make it up as he went along. And Rashi certainly had that capacity. All of us could do that. We could all kind of riff and, 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 and uh, hypothesize. But he, he prefers to the, 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 the humbler version of any day, I don't know. Um, his voice is very gentle. Um, he doesn't have a harsh word for anybody. We're not, that's not true of everybody, but that's, that's one of the ways to picture. Um, in contrast, let's say I think of the Ramban, who uh, was great in his own way, but you, you started up with the Ramban, you did not end up well. Uh, the harsh words the Ramban reverse, uh, reserves for people like the Ibn Ezra or the, the Mora Gadol, uh, you can go, and the Ramban too sometimes, uh, you, just, you're, you just pick up and you, you know, your eyes blink in shock. Wow, but not Rashi. Uh, this is the days of the crusader and Rashi couldn't be sweeter and kinder. He has a modest expression that comes up. He says, Libi Omerli. My heart tells me, and that's like an understated, humble way of saying it, and almost every single time that Libi Omerli is said, he's 100% right. Meaning he's just rendering in very simple terms, but it's impressive what he has to say. Um, Troye is the center of commerce. And because of this, Rashi has access, because a lot of Jews are traveling through, he has access to multiple manuscripts of all these classic texts. And Rashi then becomes a key figure in the project started by Rabbeinu Gershom of correcting and checking the texts. And he sets the standards of many of the final editions of Shas. In fact, often we'll have our Vilna Shas that will render, let's say, whatever the Gemara is in a certain terms. And then you look at Rashi and Rashi says, the correct girsa is really like this. And you see what Rashi says, and you compare it with your text, and you think, more times than not, you think, wait a minute, what Rashi's correcting is indeed what's in the Vilna Shas. And we have to realize is, the reason it's like that in the Vilna Shas is because that's what Rashi corrected. What was previous was simply uh, <coughs> probably a corrupt version, and Rashi was the one who set the record straight. Yeah? Yeah. 
Um, no, change from the, yeah, the Rabbeinu Gershom does, does that. They, he's talking about the text, but when you find flaws, copious errors, Rabbeinu Gershom himself was one who said that needs to be corrected as best you can. And, and they understood that human, human error was a factor to go into these errors. Um, the city of ancient Troy, um, little of it remains. Um, we're even not 100% sure what the famous Rashi's grave may or may not be Rashi's grave. Um, there is actually a newer Sephardi community, as, as much of France today um, is, is represented by, by communities often from North Africa, from the Maghreb. Um, but things change. That's the way of Gullus. It's, it's uh, transient. Are you plotting at the end of a week? Or do I, have, I don't have a long piece, but it might take me a few minutes over time if I do the Kuzari, or you want to wait? Be honest. Do the Kuzari? It's short. Let's try to get it in. What's that? You ask me later. Rabbi Yudha Levi, his dates are 1075 to 1141, is born in Toledo, what we think of as Spain. He learns, we're almost certain he was a student of the Rif in Lucina in Spain. Um, who is Rabbi Yudha Levi? Well, the Rashba tells us that he's the foremost of all Jewish poets. Without doubt, he's certainly the most prolific. He, um, he authors, among others, perhaps you've heard of, we sing them on Shabbos, Yona Matzah is, a, is, is one of the uh, great Zmiros written by Rabina Levi. He authors Tzion Tzion, one of the most famous of Kinos that we say on Tisha B'Av. Say it again. Who wrote the Kuzari? He wrote the Kuzari, we're about to say. Rabina Levi. Um, he is, we, we're not sure, but he's possibly the author of Yidid Nefesh. So that's a pretty uh, impressive personal record. I'd like to have that on my resume, I don't know about you. Um, his masterpiece is the Kuzari. It's true. Uh, that's what I'm zochad to be learning this uh, in the mornings this year with Aaron. Um, the idea of the Kuzari is to address the increasing assimilation of Jews in Spain. The Kuzari focuses on the uniqueness of Torah and Klal Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael. The Vilna Gaon will later call the work holy and pure and contain the basics of Amuna. Um, that's so far in my own, my own little experience. Um, it's so impactful. It's, it's, it's a masterpiece. The basis is based on, we talked about this once, the true story of the Khazar king, who's named Bulan, um, who converts together with most or some or all of his, his, his uh, kingdom to, to Judaism. And the setup of the book is he has a recurring dream. In his dream, he's bothered. He's told by an angel that his kavana, his intentions, ooh, akiva, kavana, uh, is a kavana is acceptable, but his actions are not. Who is that? Who can that describe? Almost all of us, right? Our kavana is good. We mean well. We want to do a good thing in the world, but our, our actions don't quite measure up to our conviction. Um, he, it sounds like a setup for a joke, we say, he, he talks to a philosopher, he talks to a Christian, talks to a Muslim, uh, they all walk into a bar, no, 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 that's not the Kuzari. Uh, and um, he's dissatisfied with all of their explanations, and he calls upon a chaver, a Jewish rabbi, who surprises the king. Instead of offering, like the previous uh, people did, proofs of Hashem's existence, he actually explains that the aim of religion is not philosophical, but it's ethical. The idea is not to create good intentions, but rather to do righteous acts. Tachlis, we're action-oriented. 
Um, when you do the right thing, you'll naturally come to Emuna in a Kaddish Baruch Hu. The Jews begin our written history with the Torah, with Herod, with, with creation of the world. Um, we continue describing Hashem's giving the Torah through Moshe, the greatest Navi. Listen to this. The Kuzari argues Christianity and Islam, it's one of the early books of our, of our tradition to actually take on Christianity and Islam from a theological standpoint. It says Christianity and, and Islam, so far, they're on board with this whole story. They agree with all of the beginning of the, the, the narrative of history that the Jews started. So he makes a very straightforward point. He says, after that, they deviated in times that there were no longer any prophecy and they claimed to have prophets in post-prophetic times. He says, the person who wants to start to change something, you guys have the burden of proof. Show us that your religion is authentic. You already, you believe that Judaism is authentic and then you deviate. You've got to offer a better argument than you have to offer. And it's one of these arguments that, to my mind, obviously I'm biased, but I don't think they have an answer. Not one that makes any sense. He points out that the Jews, for our own, for our own purposes, that you know this about us, we're innately skeptical people. There's no way that this thing was invented and Moshe Rabbeinu or whoever, a group of prophets, put this thing over on Kval Yisrael and somehow he said, oh great, Torah, mitzvahs, great, I'll do that, I'll clean, I'll, I'll get uh, dishpan hands cleaning for Pesach, I'll, I'll make sure not to have certain kinds of food, not to wear shotness, no problem. Are you kidding? We'd kick and scream. That's the nature of Kval Yisrael. I'm Kshayorath, says the Kuzari. We would never accept it, the Torah if it didn't actually happen. And he offers a further proof. We never accepted Yashka or never accepted Muhammad or any of the other nonsense that's out there in the world because of our innate skepticism, our intellectual honesty. At one point, there's one of the most famous uh, poetic accounts of the centrality of Eretz Yisrael for Klal Yisrael, this holy land. And he goes to a beautiful, and I recommend you, you, you learn this on your own carefully. And after he finishes the discussion, famously, the king turns to him and says, Chaver, referring to the rabbi, how come you don't live in Eretz Yisrael? They're, they're talking in Spain. And the Chaver responds, Hovashtani melech kuzar. You embarrass me. You're right. How come I don't live there? All these great Jews, and you're, you're talking a good game, but pick up and move and go there. And as if he were listening to giving himself Musser, that's what's written in the Kuzari that indeed was published in Spain, and Rabbi Huda Levi took it to heart. And we're not so sure what wound up happening, but we know for sure he left and set out for Eretz Yisrael. Actually we know very little about his personal life. We know that his friend is the Ibn Ezra. Um, and they and Ibn Ezra writes of their friendships. In fact, the Ibn Ezra may have married Rabbi Huda's daughter. Rabbi Huda was not satisfied. He said this statement that's oft quoted. He says, my heart is in the east, but I'm stranded in the farthest end of the west. I want to go to Eretz Yisrael. That's where a Jew belongs. And we know that he made it as far, we know for sure that he set out, traveled across North Africa, and reached as far as Alexandria and Cairo. And that at least he attempted to sail to Eretz Yisrael. Beyond that, we're not sure. And that's where legend takes over. And the legend says... He actually comes to Eretz Yisrael and reaches Jerusalem around the year 1141. He comes into Yerushalayim near Kodesh, and I think we told this story when we were, we were in front of the Crusader uh, shops in the Cardo. 
imagining that maybe that's where he might have traded some money as he came in. And as he comes and about to realize the dream of his own lifetime and kiss the, kiss the stones of the Kosal Maravi, suddenly out of nowhere, maybe it's the same uh, horseman trampling, uh, trying to get Rashi's, Rashi's mother. He's trampled, in this case, it's an Arab horseman, and he's trampled to death. The legend concludes. Oh. Now, <coughs> so sad. it's sad, but it has a huge impact, and it goes viral across the Jewish world, which embraces his Kuzari till today as a classic. And people start, now Eretz Yisrael has always been central to us, but never have we had a figure as, 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 uh, as gallant as the great Rabbi Yudha Levi, who tried to set the model himself. And we find at this point it's a bit of a turning point. Even though there are Jews in and around Eretz Yisrael, we saw this with the Yeshivas Gaon Yaakov, now we're going to find from this point a new momentum that's going to drive people back. And many people start returning to Eretz Yisrael with copies of the Kuzari in their satchels. And the legend of Rabbi Yudha Levi inspiring them. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and we'll, see, we'll see that's going to pick up a lot of force as the centuries pass. Have a fantastic Shabbos.